Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Okay, well, hello everybody. Um, we are sitting here at the University of Manchester in the Arthur Lewis Building um, on campus, where the Global Development Institute is based. Um, I'm Professor Tanya Müller. I'm a professor in political sociology here at the Global Development Institute. And I'm here with my guest today, um, Professor Lisa Anrichi from the Copenhagen Business School, the Department of Management, Society and Communications. And well, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Lisa. You braved the train strikes to be with us. You came from London today, didn't you? I did. I did. I got here. I got here in spite of the train strikes and I found a beautiful sunny Manchester. So thank you for that. Yeah. We really... don't get that very much at home in Copenhagen yeah. this time of the year. So so I so I heard. But Manchester is actually more sunny. I think it's climate change than it used to be. It's not raining all the time. So, Lisa, let's talk about your work a little bit. I mean, one of the key themes of your work is um, sort of celebrities as new actors or maybe not so new actors in development. And um, you have a long history on working on that. And some people would think, hmm, it's a bit of an odd topic to think about celebrities in development. So what made you actually, what made you study that topic? How, how did you become interested in studying sort of celebrity humanitarianism, the role of celebrities in development, all those Related issues. You want to to tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Um, well, you want that. You want you want the real story or the sanitized version? Um, <laughs> Let's start with the sanitized first, and then tell us the real or the other way, right? Absolutely. So the sanitized version um, is, of course, that what I was very interested in is elite leadership. Um, and these, you know, unelected mm. leaders and, and who, who's setting the agenda in terms of global development. And so um, I was I was almost dragged kicking and screaming into the study of celebrity. It's it's not something and I still don't think it's something that I know a lot about in general. I do know a lot about celebrity humanitarianism because mm. I've had the good uh, good fortune to work with a lot of colleagues on the celebrity humanitarianism and North South Relations Network, of which you yourself were also part of, um, with That's other true. really good scho- yeah good scholars from 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 here back in the old days and uh, back also, in the old days. Yes, yeah, just when when we were all really starting to understand that we needed to take seriously what otherwise seemed like potentially a frivolous topic. You know, the, the, the non-sanitized version is, to be honest with you, all of my previous work had been on global health, reproductive health and rights, um, politics of antiretrovirals, and I spent just too much time sitting in African health clinics. And so after I had been a year in South Africa in, um, in the health clinic in the Western Cape in Langa, every single day, really listening to the stories of people and how they were managing their lives, living on antiretrovirals. Then I came back from that year of, of, of fieldwork and research sabbatical, and I went back to my job in Copenhagen, and that's when Bono first announced Product Red. And ah, so that, okay. for me, Tanya, was just, I was so enraged. I was just, I was so emotional and intellectually enraged that he came out and said, you know, two pills, 20p at a day, take them at breakfast and at dinner, and you can save the lives of millions of dying of Africans. And I just had been so close to people and and understood so much more about Mm. how it takes much more than just two pills pills a day. Um, And in the beginning, you know, I was just frustrated. And then I just had to put my frustration into a productive channel, which became my research agenda. 
And I got more and more interested and I recognized that that was really a, a bit of a tip of the iceberg for me in terms of understanding what, what really is now, you know, really what we see in the SDGs. Um, these, these emphasis on partnerships, new actors and alliances have mm. become the actors and alliances. And when, you know, scholars like you and I started talking about these, you know, a decade and a half ago, at that point, the debate was, well, are they new? Are they acting in new ways? And we, you know, we, d we did some nice scholarship, including, you know, including a book with lots of different contributors understanding the ways in which they, they act differently and the ways in which they really are reproducing similar, you know, hierarchies to old bilateral, multilateral actors in development. But today, in, in many ways, I think, you know, we, what we used to think of as the exception is becoming more and more the rule. Mm -hmm. So my focus isn't so much specifically just on celebrities, but on the partnership element. Yeah. Um, so you're not one of those people studying celebrities because you also have a secret <laughs> crush on them. I remember I crush all the celebrities. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, listen, and I, I, I will be honest with you. It's been very interesting to have the excuse when I first started doing this research. One of my kids literally was like, hey, mom, does that mean we're going to get a TV now? And I was like, absolutely not. You know, <laughs> don't, don't ask me that as if somehow we're going to get a TV just because mom's trying to write a book on celebrities. Um, needless to say, I now have a couple of books and we also have a TV. So I guess yeah, that, that was one of those proverbial win-wins. <laughs> well, I do remember some of the events we jointly attended um, that both of us were sometimes irritated by people who seemed much more interested in the lives of the celebrity and what great people they were rather than in those underlining issues that, that you've just mentioned. Absolutely. So. And, you know, you and I both know, you know, if, if we had, you know, a, a kroner, a euro or a dollar for every single time someone says, but do they really care? Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we were usually on the same side of this, but, but that, you know, that kind of emotional concern, that kind of privileging always of white people's feelings, um, yeah, really, yeah. really derails what's, what are really the important questions in development and humanitarianism, which is how accountable are they? What kinds of institutions do they work with? What kinds of people do they claim to represent and on what grounds? Whether or not they really care, first of all, how would we know? And second mm. of all, who cares? Probably they do care, yeah. just like everybody yeah. does care about development issues and humanitarian uh, crises. But whether or not their care actually has any useful impact is a whole other issue. No, that's yeah. true. And of course, a lot of them actually use a lot of their fame and their engagement to, for example, don't pay taxes in the countries where they reside, so depriving system of social protection of its resources etc etc so there are a lot of contentious issues absolutely because you know the system's not sexy but the celebrity yeah. is yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean your latest book has the sexy title batman saves the congo so how did that come about i mean how did um the title the title come about <laughs> yeah okay well the title actually came about It was, it was literally titled by my son because I was talking so much about this project that I was doing together with my collaborator. I also want to emphasize I'm the second author on this book, um, Alexandra Budabin, who is a researcher at University of Bolzano in Italy, uh, is the first author. And Alex and I had been working on Batman for a number of years. And we, we wrote a few articles together because he was one of the comparative celebrities that we were interested in when we were working on the network of celebrity and North-South relations. And in the beginning, you know, it was interesting because Alex brought him to me in the case and some of the facts about the early days about the how Eastern Congo Initiative worked. And he seemed to be an exception. He seemed to be our black swan, our good celebrity who was doing things in a really different, more accountable, more transparent way. And most importantly for me, he wasn't trying to sell me anything. 
And I was very surprised because every other celebrity mm. partnership always involves a partnership with a corporation. And eventually, on one side or another, the, the actual, you know, advertising push and promotion of particular products. And so I was very interested that in the beginning, he wasn't doing that. And I'll talk a little more about that in my talk today here about the history of how they as an institution changed their uh, strategies. But we talked a lot about, you know, whether this was the case. And so then we decided we, we, we would actually keep working together and, and work on a book. And we talked about it so much. I was complaining so much about this white saviorism. And finally, my son was like, oh, yeah, Batman, you should call your book Batman Saves the Congo. Okay, right. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly I thought, you know, this is quite remarkable. Because one of the things we were writing about when he, when he came up with this funny suggestion, which was, you know, kind of as a, as a preteen, and I think he didn't think we would ever take him seriously, is we were working on this historical chapter where we actually trace back the narratives about Saving Congo. Mm, and of mm. course, Batman is definitely not the first one to come up with this, you know, with this kind of white saviorism. And what was really fascinating was going through the history, you know, and the history linked to colonialism, the history linked to exploitation and imperialism, the, the history linked to missionaries who would, you know, yeah, publicize and send pictures to, you know, to justify their own fundraising in very similar ways that we see today to celebrity organizations. So Batman Saves the Congo kind of stuck. And we, we were surprised a little bit that the publisher let us do that because we were like, ooh, do you think we'll get in trouble? Okay, Some right. Kind of copyright so issue. No um, but um, they, so, so far, we haven't had any problems with it. So <laughs> we knock on wood. Hopefully, after this podcast, you know, goes global, we won't uh, we won't have any lawyers on our on our tracks. But yeah, so I think that we we do something a little bit different with that than probably the the Batman franchise would be too concerned about. <laughs> I mean, the book has in its subtitle how sort of those actors disrupt development um, in a way. But but do they? Yeah. <sighs> I mean, you said at the beginning, you know, and I remember actually Alex giving talks um, at one of those events we had in Copenhagen. Uh, and at the time, she I think it was the phase when she was still very impressed. Um, and I found that quite troubling at the time. It's many years back. Um, so I, I, I was really wondering how how sort of the narrative evolved in terms of like the disruption or does Batman do things differently or is it even possible to do things differently? Are, are the structures not set up in a way that even if you had good intentions, it would be almost impossible? I mean, what's the... Yeah, Tanya, you know, you know that before I became professor of globalization, I was professor of international development. And you know that all the time I was really, really thinking about what does this case, what does it really teach us, mm. us uh, scholars of development, to be mm. honest with you? I mean, that's what I'm really interested mm. in because... This notion of disruption, of course, you know, comes out of the whole Silicon Valley ethos in California with, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that, you know, old institutions, you know, like, of course, traditional aid institutions really need to be disrupted to be more efficient and mm, more effective yeah, and yeah. um, all this kind of effective altruism. But but this this really limits us with this telos that somehow disruption is always a good thing. We're always going to go into something better. Mm. And so the disruptive elements that we see in terms of the example that we have of the celebrity strategic partnerships between Ben Affleck, Eastern Congo Initiative, and a variety of government, NGO, and business partnerships is really the disruption about not having the perception of donor-recipient, instead having business prov and, and provider and consumers. 
And so the idea is that not only are consumers the ones who are supporters of the of the initiative or supporters of Affleck, but the Congolese themselves are perceived as being consumers. And this has been a really interesting thing to understand that in the language of people who work with the organization, um, they actually they actually believe that this is a good you know this is a good way that this is something somehow that's less colonial, that's more you know that's more egalitarian in its perceptions. But um, I'm looking for there's there's a, there's a quote we have in the book actually, which is one of my respondents who talked about this particularly, which was quite amazing to me because basically he said you know is you know isn't it better that we think about them you know as consumers. But the people that they're considering to be consumers are people who literally can't spend, you know, 15p a day to mm. buy the water that they're now being sold by Ben Affleck's organization. Mm. Mm. And so what it has basically done is just emphasize a neoliberal notion of privatized development, right? Taken out the role of the state, taken out the legitimate demands for your rightful share, mm. Mm. and instead made people consumers of things like basic water and sanitation. So I think that that's the most you know significant disruptive element. I don't think it really disrupts our notions of development. And this is actually one of the things that I, I have a section that I wrote in the conclusion. And as you say, you know, we, we are different sort of different sides of the scholarship. Alex comes from a work on uh, on activism and, yeah, and social okay. movements yeah. and political mm-hmm. science. And I come from the politics of development. And so sometimes you can see that in the book. It's fun having two authors. But this notion for me was, you know, I was like, what kind of politics is the politics mm, of development yeah. anyway? Mm. Um, and, and for me, the politics of development really has a very, you know, a very contentious history. And of course, that's been one of the most interesting that's happened in scholarship on development is mm. that we take that history and we, we ex, you know, we, we take it by the horns and we try to wrestle with it. We try to understand it and we try to figure out, OK, so then what? I mean, you know, mm. sure, we know, you know, we know development has this history from you know, 1492, really. Right. You know, decolonization discourses have really made it important for us to think about, yeah, the history between exploitation and development, between empire and development. Um, you know, between racism and development. And I think those are really important issues. But sometimes I think, you know, that, that what we see now is this notion about development as an aspirational brand. And this mm. is not just because I sit in the business school. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I mean, even people like, you know, Amata Sen would, um, at the end of the day, subscribe to that. And a lot of people that, uh, you know, are always seen as on the good side of things and not accused yeah. of being of colonial mindsets. but. That's of course always questionable where this whole idea comes from. That, yeah, but I think it's a, you know, and this is what, so what, what I write here in the in the book, you know, is basically that the trajectory from underdeveloped to developed is a dangerous single story mm. that we Westerners, right, white, non-poor, heteronormative folks, tell about ourselves. Right, it's a story we tell about us. A lot like Lily Shularaki's notion of post-humanitarianism. Yeah, this mm-hmm. notion about you know, it's really not about us; it's about them, which is about us. And it's 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 something which is useful to consider this development as an aspirational brand of a, a better, clearer, less troubled version of ourselves as individuals and nations. But we have to constantly police this brand. We have to constantly police this border to make it coherent. And surely we do need to dis- disrupt that politics. Surely we do need a disruption of development. I mean, I have no doubt about that. And I think that there, have, you know, as long as I've studied development, there have always been critical scholars mm. disrupting yeah, yeah, at the course, same time. Yeah. Mm. But but what we saw in this particular study, and what I see more and more with the study of partnerships, and we can talk a little more about that with the SDGs. But it's instead of seeing a disruption about this usual business of development, we instead see the perpetuation as development 
as a business, right? And that business seems to be absolutely no longer questioned as the, not, not just a driver, an actor or a collaborator, but the ones who need to be looked to, to set the agenda. Mm-hmm. And I really wonder, you know, how that space has been taken or who's abdicated that space and where are all of the activists and where are all, you know, where are mm-hmm. the people who are saying, you know, not in any way to defend sort of traditional development because, you know, this is one of the things we, we always talk about in these kind of contentious things. Mm-hmm. Development scholars, we love to laugh at Batman, but actually we need to turn back the lens on ourselves and look at what, what do we do as development and humanitarianism in our scholarship and in our advocacy and in our policy work. And how, you know, how can we make that address you know, the, real, sort of the, the real questions and dilemmas that this brings up? One of the things that, that's quite coming up more and more is this sort of co-production of things and then also to borrow things from the global south for the global north. So sort of reverse development. I mean, it's a quite fashionable thing that happens a lot. And here in Manchester, actually, we have an initiative um, of sort of poor women saving groups who actually structure themselves in the same way as saving groups in the global south, where some of our, our colleagues worked before, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, I mean, disruption, I think, I mean, I think that's also part of a disruption, even though it might not change the narrative itself, and it might not change the story in itself, but that there is this trajectory from something called underdeveloped or less developed or whatever you want to call it and, and towards developed. But um, so in that sense, I suppose one could see an initiative like uh, Ben Affleck, X, something maybe trying to do that in a different way, in the way business may work. And I've, I'm aware you have with Stefano, you've worked on a different sort of example on coffee chains, I think, where things worked, seem to have worked really maybe in a better way that were disruptive to stay in the terminology. Maybe you, you want to say a few words about that. So I found that was very interesting. Yeah, thank you. Actually, I was going to talk a little bit more about that today in my talk because I thought, yeah, I think it might be more interesting for some colleagues here to expand on some of those details. Also because academically as social scientists, it was one of the few examples where we were able to actually get a really good case comparison where, you know, in the world of social science possibilities, we managed to hold most of the variables con- uh, consistent and actually only change whether or not your, you know, your uh, initiative had a celebrity collaborator and on all the kinds of, of power and, and input with companies like Starbucks that they could actually convene. So this was some work that we did um, together. It was a, sort of adjacent to the work I was doing with Alex Budabin. Stefano Ponte and I published a piece in the, in the journal World Development looking at Starbucks. Uh, because Starbucks became one of the collaborative partners with the Eastern Congo Initiative, Ben Affleck's organization. And they did work in Eastern Congo in the Kivus. And um, Stefano has has experience, extensive experience doing research on coffee and particularly coffee in, in, in Eastern Africa. And we wanted to actually find out more about the impact that it actually had on farmers. Because this is one thing which absolutely reasonably many of these new actors and alliances pieces have been critiqued for is you know the fact that we really don't get a good sense about what their actual impacts are and now we can talk about the difficulty mm-hmm. of finding out the actual impact of any dis, you know discrete development or humanitarian initiative but overall this is absolutely the case and part of it has to do with of course you know the need for field work the need for actually going there this is not something which you know you can just skype into you know coffee collectives and say well mm. how's it going these days with that collaboration mm. 
this collaboration was fascinating, and I'll, I won't tell too many of the details. If anybody's really interested, they can listen to uh, listen to the talk because I will, I'll put up the numbers and things like that because we actually did the work. And I, I want to emphasize that one of the things that's really important, sometimes it, it, it seems to be easy to make the kinds of arguments that you make without actually going and doing local level field work. And I don't, you know, I just don't think that that has the same value. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, it was really, really important to know how it was that these celebrity strategic partnerships did or didn't actually bring in, you know, what we imagine really, which is more resources, right? We imagine Mm. that in the very least, they're going Mm. to be able Mm. to pay their way out of the problem of development, Mm. right? They're going to be able to take local problems and they're going to be able to fix them with enough money and an expertise, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so we had an interesting example where we, we got to compare two cooperatives actually one, I mean, which which were basically under under the same, sorry, exactly the same kinds of terms in terms of revitalizing the Eastern Congo coffee sector. One which had the initiative, which was sponsored by the Eastern Congo Initiative, called Kahawabora, Better Coffee in Kiswahili, and the other which was run by a more traditional European NGO um, called Ricolto. And so we actually we we had a collaborator that we knew from previous work who went and did interviews for us with farmers, with cooperatives, with their their leadership, but also with local traders to find out some of the details, mm. also about the kind of production that they were able yeah. to have, I mean, um, the kind of payment structures, mm. which were really important to farmers. And, Absolutely, you know, yeah. and the one thing which was also helpful is, I mean, it, it, it's not it's not a situation where you say, oh, you know, Ben Affleck's organization did nothing for farmers. Of course they did. You know, farmers were paid. They were paid by Starbucks a fair price and they were paid, you know, according according to an agreed upon time schedule, which was, of course, a value. But they were not prepared for how they were going to compete in the coffee market when and if Starbucks stops buying from them. Starbucks committed to. Uh, you know, a particular buying contract, which is perfectly reasonable, mm-hmm. which is how they also operate. Mm-hmm. But this is not long term and it can't be. Mm-hmm. And so in no, terms no, of, of actually yeah. supporting mm-hmm. these farmers, you really have to make sure that they can have the possibility of selling to other buyers, that they can be prepared to do that. And in spite of the fact that they had so many more resources, this project had a lot of problems on the ground from the beginning, but it was too big to fail. And the reason it was too big to fail was because it had celebrities like Ben Affleck. Um, it had interested investors, right? People like Buffett. Um, they had Starbucks. And so USAID, which was one of their main partners, normally on a project that went so as badly as this, they, they, they would basically have pulled the plug or certainly not, you know, not have continued financing them. But in this case, they basically put in more support and more resources. They changed the collaborating partners just to make it work. Did it work? Sure. In terms of the cost benefit about how much money they had to invest to make it work versus what the farmers got. I mean, the comparative case shows a very clear story to us Mm. that it it doesn't give you good value for money. But what it did do is it gave very good value for Starbucks, who got access to what they, they very much needed, which is a very good quality, you know, high-level coffee that they needed to have for their own particular specialty markets. Mm. And so it was very, you know, it was very good for developing business. Um, maybe not so good for developing development. <laughs> yeah, no, interesting. Um, well, to come to an end, um, I think it would be interesting if you could just also outline the things you are currently working on, or what you think you will be uh, working on in the in the near future. Now that oh, yes. the book tour, I think, comes to an end almost. I think you've probably. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Okay. So what? Yeah, so what, am, what am I working on now? I'm like, hmm, okay. So I'm gonna pull 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 out pull out the next manuscript. Uh, I'm working on the next book. Okay. So, slowly, I would say. <laughs> um, but I have a I have a research project which this which Batman Saves the Congo was also part of, and I know that you've been very supportive of of the work of myself and, and also our colleagues called Commodifying Compassion: mm-hmm. Implications of Turning People and Humanitarian Causes into Marketable Things. And so I'd like to write a book out of that, looking at the comparisons that we have, because we have three different countries, Denmark, the U.S. and Italy, and the ways in which these kinds of initiatives where we're getting these partnerships, basically linking together corporations, celebrities, most of the time, and various causes, humanitarian and development. So I want to look at that. And I'm particularly interested in um, this the next piece I'm writing is a work called Why Does Capitalism Feel So Right? I'm interested in how these ethical imaginaries get created and how this feel-good effect actually is something where we're able to profit from the possibility that there are other people for Mm. us to help. So That's a great title. It does capitalism feel so right. I like that. I hope so. So that's what I'm working on, and I'm talking about that with some people, including yourself, Tanya. You'll you'll be subjected to this, uh, asking if you'll help me to to give some comments on this work. Um, And my collaborators have been doing a lot of really interesting pieces as well. So if anybody's interested, you can always find out about what what everybody does. We have everything up on our website, Commodifying Compassion. And um, we usually have free versions up there as well. So hopefully somebody might want to read some of it. Well, Stufa, that was really great. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with you on the book and on your other work and on your future. And thanks for coming to Manchester on a sunny day. Thank you. uh, And on a train strike day. And yeah, so we look forward to have you with us again anytime in the future. Thanks again. Thank Thank you so much.